Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good weekend and hard to believe we are already at the start of another week. However, it is hard to believe that this week is the last full week of February. Yes, I know February is the shortest month out of the year, but regardless, uh, 2023 has definitely uh, started off very, very fast. And what do you know? Before we know it, uh, March will be here. Well, I know I, I know I was on the air last, um, oh, probably about four days or maybe five days ago at best. I mean, it, between four, four and five days ago. And when I was on the air last, as I was uh, wrapping up the uh, last uh, podcast segment to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold, one thing I recall telling you all was that on August the 3rd of 1780, George Washington, or rather General George Washington, wrote to Benedict Arnold on August 3rd, 1780, giving him the green light to proceed on to West Point and take command of the fort and everything else nearby. You know, it's one thing to give an order to someone. As a commanding officer, you have to hope that the officer that you have entrusted, not only so much within your inner circle, but the, but regardless of where his rank stood, and of course when I say his rank, we have to remember in the American Revolution, um, there were no such things as female officers. That will come much later on down the road in America's history. But for General Washington, trust is a very, very um, sacred um, vow. And it's more than just a marriage in terms of trust. Uh, you know, we deal. We have to deal with trust on a uh, daily um, basis. We have to hope that no matter where we go, whether, you know, we're taking our car to the mechanic to for its inspection, you know, yearly inspection or uh, for a repair, that not, that not only will the job get done right, but that the work itself was done with the utmost care, uh, with the utmost... Um, accountability. So when George Washington is giving an assignment to an officer below him, that officer better uh, do what he is instructed to do. And if that officer doesn't do what is asked um, of him by Washington, then he will have to ex explain, um, he will have to answer to Washington why he did not uh, go down the proper path. So in this uh, podcast segment episode to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold, we are going to be in for some um, some surprises. I don't know if I want to tell you if it's for better or for worse, because if I told you the answer now, then there would be no need to really even go into investigating why what took place did in fact happen. What I do know is that um, what we are going to be learning about does involve uh, some individuals whom I did not know anything about until having read this book. And to me, they are considered unsung heroes. Something tells me I might even refer to them, to these individuals as unsung heroes in another podcast um, somewhere down the road in the foreseeable future. But one thing for sure is that we have a lot of ground to cover and I know most of you have probably heard me say before, how many pages do you usually cram in 
for podcasts, Kirk. I mean, I, I know none of you have probably asked me in general, but if some of you probably were thinking to yourselves in your mind, how many pages can Kirk Monroe fit in going into an episode? It's usually five, but it's between five and six. This one's six pages. So we have managed to get through on other occasions with six-page uh, podcast segments. We've got another one tonight. And we've got to keep the ball rolling uh, because we have a lot of ground to cover. So let's fasten the seatbelts and get the show on the road. Here we go with our first leadoff question to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold by Joyce Lee Malcolm. What did Benedict Arnold and his British contact, okay, and for those of you who were with me on the previous uh, podcast, you all, one of your all's biggest uh, assignments was probably finding out who um, who within the British spy uh, ranks would be the one to uh, carry out a mission, a mission that I that I know is, in fact is a very dangerous mission. But whom would Benedict Arnold be coming in contact with? Well, for those of you who listened to the uh, podcast segment, you uh, learned that it was a, a a fellow by the name of John Andre. Or rather, I should say, Major John Andre, because that's the rank he attained um, besides being adjutant general, or I should say military administrative officer. He uh, became a uh, major in the spring of 1779, uh, right around the same time that uh, Benedict Arnold and um, Peggy Shippen uh, married. So what did Benedict Arnold and his British contact, Major John Andre, have in common? Well, it turns out, folks, that both men were novices. What, no, what the term novice means is a beginner. They were beginners at spy practicing. You know, it's one thing to uh, be a spy, whether you're a spy on the Continental Army or a spy for the British. But just because you're a spy, it, it may not mean that you are. Um, it may not mean that you are an advanced spy. There's nothing wrong with having a novice, but wouldn't it be fair to say that if you were a novice, that you would want to have, um, that you would want to be apprenticed? I mean, you don't have time to be apprenticed for seven years, but wouldn't you want to be apprenticed on the scene, uh, going uh, behind enemy lines and trying to gather information about the enemy that would be to your advantage? Sure, but wouldn't you want to be mentored under someone who has seniority? Absolutely. Well, Time really, in a sense, time may have been the essence for Arnold to achieve what he wanted to achieve. But unfortunately for Benedict Arnold, just like John Andre, neither one of the men are uh, veterans when it comes to um, true experience at spy practicing. They are simply what we call novices, 101 beginners. They are the, at the entry level, 101 entry level to spying. Despite British uh, General Henry Clinton having suspicions from the start about Benedict Arnold, he still kept Arnold aboard, given the information that Arnold had provided about West Point and its forts along the Hudson River. Yes, and that was valuable information. But by the time Benedict Arnold arrives into West Point, his communications with the British become more unsecure. That is unchecked. So in other words, yes, they have valuable information about West Point that he has given to them. 
but yet his communications with the British are not constant. There probably could be a reason for that. Maybe he hasn't fully broken away from the, the continental side. You know, it's one thing to want to engage in uh, traitorous acts, but if you were going to do that, wouldn't you want to make sure that you did everything you could to have severed ties with the previous side? Well, that's easier said than done, but a lot also might depend on where your rank is within that um, within the current or, um, party that you're affiliated with, in this case, the Continental Army with Benedict Arnold. Uh, remember, he can't just say tomorrow, well, I, I'm resigning my post. Well, of course, if he told that to Washington, Washington would say, why are you resigning? You know, you've said this before, and we all have learned by now that Benedict Arnold had threatened to resign on various other instances, only for Washington to say, hold on, I've got something for you. And what did Benedict Arnold do? He answered the call of duty. So why should this be any different? Well, one thing I do know, or rather another thing I, I think that is very fair to say, it is fair to say that West Point in West Point, New York and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania are totally opposite of one another. Am I correct? Yes. On one hand, West Point isn't too terribly far from what we know as, say, present-day Manhattan or New York City, but West Point does not have the same population as Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, of course, um, even into the Revolutionary War's um, fifth year, 1780, fifth or sixth year, it's still the largest city in the colonies. But the reason why Philadelphia has a far greater advantage than West Point it's not so much that it's a larger city, but it's also a larger city that caters to more loyalists. It's a, a broad, broad enough population where loyalists could come and go without, without drawing too much attention upon themselves. Given that Philadelphia probably has about, oh, 40,000 people, and, you know, there's a population in America probably of about two or two and a half million, but Philadelphia has probably somewhere close to 40,000 people, there is a very, very good likelihood that anybody, regardless of their ties, will be able to fit in so well that when people come and go, others just won't think anything of it. If you go into West Point, population is far, much, far more smaller than Philadelphia. So when people come and go, it might be more uh, visible. It may be something that people would prefer to notice. You know, it may be one thing for you to know five or ten people in West Point, but if you run into people that you don't know, and then all of a sudden you see them engaging in something that you know is not um, is not ethical, that's not um, normal, then yeah, it's it's going to raise a greater uh, red flag than say somewhere in uh, Philadelphia. So the bottom line is, uh, differences in overall population size can. Um, can play out in dictating whether or not something suspicious has a greater um, likelihood of happening. Now, uh, Joseph, uh, we take Joseph Stansbury here, who is Arnold's uh, courier, a.k.a. messenger in Philadelphia. He had no troubles in getting around Philadelphia. Stansbury refused to take part in any actions involving um, war zones where the likelihood of getting caught was much greater. 
So in other words, was Joseph Stansbury willing to um, risk his own life by um, sending uh, messages going into, say, no man's land uh, to uh, send messages where he uh, knew, for one, was not familiar with the area, and two, he knew there would be a great likely, greater likelihood of getting caught and perhaps uh, facing the most, uh, what do you call it, the most uh, dangerous of offenses, not so much the most dangerous of offenses, but perhaps the most dangerous of consequences. Not so much being found guilty of um, of engaging in um, in acts of um, in acts of obtaining uh, intelligence against the enemy, but but the actions alone could result in say uh, death by hanging. So there's no guarantee that if you are out on the front line um, providing or obtaining information for the side that you're on and trying to uh, break through enemy lines. That is enemy, uh, what do you call it, zones for uh, crossing. Think of like about, you know, like modern day cross borders from the United States into Canada, Canada into the United States, or Mexico into the United States, vice versa. You have to go through, you know, the, we go through customs, um, put, uh, custom borders. Back then, there was no such thing as custom borders, but we also should keep in mind that there are checkpoints, uh, there are people on patrol on both sides of this cause. So for uh, someone like Joseph Stansbury, who is Arnold's uh, courier, or rather I should say messenger in Philadelphia, he does not uh, want to take part in actions involving a, a war zone where the likelihood of getting caught was much greater. He preferred to have John Andre work directly with Arnold. You know, I think it's going to be fair to say that someone's life is going to be spared, whereas somebody else's could possibly not. Now, August 3rd, 1780, General Clinton, how ironic, on August 3rd, 1780, George Washington has given uh, Benedict Arnold the green light to proceed on to West Point. But on August 3rd of 1780, General Henry Clinton on the British side has given the green light for Major John Andre to meet directly with Arnold. Clinton was taking a serious risk in sending Major Andre behind enemy lines for one, the man lacked um, he lacked he lacked true experience in um, an overall um, spy information, not just spy information, but an over, overall in the overall practice of spying. So yes, um, General Clinton has uh, really um, taken a huge risk in sending Major Andre behind enemy lines. Direct correspondence alone, even with an assumed name, could not assure total safety. For Arnold and Andre. Of course, you know, Benedict Arnold's assumed, he's got two assumed names that I'm sure you all learned uh, when uh, listening, that there was um, Gustavus Adolphus and Gustavus Monk. And for uh, John Andre, his alias became John Anderson. So even with an assumed name, folks, there's no guarantee that... Um, that these uh, two men are going to uh, be 100% safe, no matter what direction they go. I mean, we know even in today's time, there are people who get arrested. They've been on the run for years. They've been living under an assumed name. And they think, oh, well, I live under this assumed name. I've um, changed my identity somewhat in terms with um, maybe dyeing my hair 
growing out a beard. Nobody will catch me. But somewhere down the somewhere down the road, luck does run out. So even in this uh, Revolutionary War, we might be surprised to find out that no matter how good your aliases are, <laughs> there's no guarantee that those aliases alone can protect you, regardless of where your uh, travels are taking you when it comes to uh, crossing through uh, war zones. So uh, August 5th, 1780, Benedict Arnold arrived to West Point where he took over the command from Major General Robert Howe. The headquarters uh, chosen was a home belonging to Colonel uh, Beverly uh, Robinson, where Robert Howe's headquarters had previously been. Colonel Robinson's letter was what helped lure Arnold over to the British side. Colonel Robinson uh, was one of um, New York's wealthiest men. His home across the Hudson River was protected on two sides by the mountains and forests. Arnold pretty much knew that this location was good as it was out of sight for Continental troops protecting the fort from the outside, that is West Point, in the event Arnold had to make a fast escape. The more trees you have uh, for protection, um, it does provide um, a good sense of um, protection if you don't want uh, someone from the opposite end to uh, see what's going on from perhaps the horizon. Did Benedict Arnold allow for West Point, including its fortifications, to go into disrepair? Yes, he did. However, this is what's ironic. Yes, well, for starters, yes, he did allow for West Point, uh, including its fortifications, to go into disrepair. But the, the irony to it is that at first he advised General Washington about the fort's current problems, which were actually meant, of course, Washington didn't know this, but what the reason why Benedict Arnold is telling George Washington about the, about the fort's uh, current problems is because it's meant to aid the enemy, being the British. Arnold asked New York's governor to send multiple teams out into the Hudson River where, a ma where its massive chain could be removed to have new logs fitted for supporting uh, purposes. But unfortunately, the real reason why the massive uh, chain was removed because Benedict Arnold wanted to make things easier in allowing British ships to navigate upwards on the Hudson River. This massive chain was meant to slow down enemy ships who tried to make their way into the Hudson River, not just so much into the Hudson River, but going upward, going against the currents, against the tide. So by uh, removing the massive chain, Arnold is now would now, in essence, allow for British ships to have uh, better navigation going upwards along the Hudson River. Here's a question here. Although Peggy Shippen, Benedict's wife, had come from a well-to-do family, were she and Benedict um, financially well-off? What do you all think? Uh, I mean, yes, Peggy Shippen came from a well-to-do family, but it turns out, folks, in this case, right now at this time, they are not financially well-off. They are getting by as best as they can, 
and Benedict Arnold still has remained in debt. As plans for betraying West Point grew, Arnold realized it was best for his wife and child. Believe it or not, folks, Benedict Arnold and Peggy Shippen uh, had a child together. So Benedict Arnold and, uh, requested that Peggy and their uh, young uh, son, who's probably about almost six months old, uh, come join him, given that if the West Point plot prevailed, Arnold and his family would be safer away from Philadelphia, given that the city was filled with radicals, including Congress, or rather I should say the body of Congress whom opposed Arnold, whom had been opposing Arnold for quite some time. Yes, New York does have a, a strong loyalist uh, population, but Arnold may come to the realization here soon that just because he wants Peggy and her uh, and her child to come live with him, that it may not be a 100% guarantee that things might uh, work out for the better. Now, in order for Peggy Shippen and her son to come meet uh, Benedict in um, New York, or in West Point, rather, I should say, the journey from Philadelphia to West Point is going to take 140 miles. Now, remember, folks, there's no such thing as Interstate 95, US 1, 301. So traveling is going to be very different. I, I'm sure some of you are probably thinking, okay, well, you know, if Peggy Shippen comes from a well enough family that's well off, her dad probably could uh, find a way to get uh, Peggy and her uh, child, and if, uh, if another um, assistant needed to come along the way, how about they all just go in a horse and buggy? Well, that, that would be a great way. But at the same time, by going horse and buggy, you're not uh, immune from anything unexpected, such as, the, uh, such as a wheel breaking off or uh, the horse and buggy getting stuck in a bad a pile of um, mud due to a rainstorm. We must keep in mind that even rainstorms back then washed out dirt roads, folks. So traveling by horse and buggy did not guarantee a safe passage, not even 140 miles. And even if it did, the horse and buggy is only going to be able to go probably about 20 miles, maybe 30, depending on how just how good things are. So actually... Um, Peggy Shippen is not feeling 100% her best. So, and given that she has a six-month-old child and, and has a nurse, Benedict Arnold is kind enough to give Peggy some specific instructions with regards to leaving and departing from a carriage. Okay, so they, they will be traveling by carriage, but it's also going to have to involve crossing a ferry or not just crossing a ferry, but perhaps multiple ferries from point A to point B. Uh, so yes, um, having access to uh, waterways was very important back then because it probably did cut down on um, perhaps on travel and the ferries alone probably also cut out uh, would-be unexpected uh, situations such as um, getting stuck in the mud due to uh, rain that washed out a uh, dirt road. What one, one of the things that does concern Benedict Arnold is that if uh, Peggy and her son and, um, and the nurse uh, have to uh, get access to a ferry uh, entered upon um, via ferry, 
the biggest concern is making sure they go over bridges that are that are large. And the reason why it's important to go over bridges that are large is so that no accidents occur while in transit. So, it, yeah, it'd be bad enough if you're stuck on land, but can you imagine if you um, don't, if the ferry crossing doesn't prevail because the bridge isn't um, tall enough to where if the crossing doesn't go through, then you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So it is fair to say that Arnold has done his homework in trying to assure that his wife and child and the nurse make it safely with, with as little um, issues as possible. Peggy and, the, and her party depart on September 6, 1780, and they arrive six days later to West Point. They will stay until September 27th. That's as far as I'm going to go on that part right there, but I will mention September 27th, that date, somewhere uh, much later on uh, down the road in this uh, podcast uh, segment episode. Now, September 11th of 1780 saw uh, John Andre and Benedict Arnold. The plan was for these two men um, to meet at Dobbs Ferry around 12 p.m. And the plan was to um, go about meeting under a um, under a flag of truce. And of course, when we think of uh, it's whenever we hear flags of truce, that means that it's non-fighting. Um, the intentions are peace, you know, some kind of resolution. Prior to their meeting, Arnold advised Washington that he was going to Dobbs Ferry and establish signals should, in the event, British forces were to come upon the Hudson River. Okay, this is another um, strategy here where Benedict Arnold is saying one thing to Washington, but yet he's going to do the opposite. This man is really playing with fire. You know, yes, when you tell George Washington something, of course Washington wants to believe that you are doing what what you are saying that you're doing. That's what we would that's what we always would like to believe. So for Benedict Arnold, he's now doing the opposite. At Haverstraw, Arnold set out by barge with eight men whom were uh, unaware of the intended mission. Eight men uh, that for whom uh, rode Arnold, they rode him 13 miles to a meeting place only for British crews nearby to fire at Arnold's barge. Arnold remained on shore, folks, nine hours until sunset when finally returning to home, when he was finally able to return to the home of a loyalist, Joshua Smith, whose name is going to be mentioned very frequently uh, in this uh, segment as well. So I can't imagine being stranded nine hours. Should this perhaps be a situation now given that fi- given that the British had uh, opened fire on Benedict Arnold's boat. Was this perhaps a test to see whether or not Benedict Arnold really had it in him to sell out his country? Maybe they were trying to warn him of what consequences he could uh, face if he really did go forward and uh, 
and pull off the unthinkable. To me, if I was stupid enough to engage in something like that and I had um, enemy fire like that, I guess I would have to think twice. But the but the problem is is that he's already head he's already head over uh, his toes. That's the right way to phrase it. He's already into deep water, so it's not like he could just get out tomorrow. He's he's committed, folks. He's addicted, which is the scary part. Arnold and Andre met up a few days after September 11th to discuss new strategies, which included Arnold's uh, writing to Colonel John Lamb requesting the riverbanks around Dobbs Ferry be better secured to where he would not get fired upon. Well, that was smart. Uh, Wednesday, September 20th of 1780, Major John Andre set out for Dobbs Ferry where he would uh, meet Arnold. His arrival into Dobbs Ferry did not result in spotting a particular British vessel that he was awaiting to board, uh, being the Vulture. He did, however, uh, get a boat to send him to the Vulture where he spent the day aboard. As day turned to night... Andre faced, rather I should say, he pardon me, he paced frantically aboard the Vulture, knowing that a second attempt to seize West Point from from the enemy, in this case being the Continental uh, Army, could fail. In other words, John Andre is now the one who's kind of starting to maybe show signs that he's running out of patience, and that perhaps he doesn't want to go through with this. Perhaps John Andre maybe is thinking to himself. I need to find someone else who can do this. I don't know how much more I have left in me. So who, um, we've got to now focus upon a random average Joe man whom I don't know if I want to say if it's fair to say if he was in the right place at the right time, but unfortunately he was one of those individuals who did, who I will tell you right now, who did not ask to be in a situation that, unfortunately, he got uh, thrown into. He um, did not purposely approach the British, but someone came to him. Someone came to this particular individual for assistance. So let's find out who this individual is. I don't believe most of you would know him, and that's fine. I didn't know anything about this guy until reading the book. But here we go. Who is Samuel Cahoon? And his last name is spelled C-A-H-O-O-N. Who is Samuel Cahoon? He is a local farmer um, who obviously owns property uh, not too far from West Point. He didn't own any boats. But yet he agreed to deliver a sensitive letter involving Joshua Smith and Benedict Arnold. This is where nice acts sometimes can get in us individuals or can get anyone into trouble because they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. So Samuel Cahoon agreed to deliver a, a letter. Of course, he probably didn't know just how sensitive it was, but we know that, that if it's a letter involving Benedict Arnold and someone else within the Loyalist camp, it is, it's got to be something very sensitive. So, Cahoon goes about um, taking on this request. He got to Colonel Robinson's house on the morning of September 21st. 
with Smith's letter. Well, for Samuel Cahoon, he advised, um, he advised, um, he advised um, the following that he could not get a boat to meet John Andre. In other words, he simply could not find uh, the nearest boat. Cahoon is by now worn out come September 21st. If I was in his shoes, I would be pretty worn out as well. But the irony to it is that Samuel Cahoon is a low-level fella. He is so low-level, folks, that he's been—he's already been told by the British that he, that he has a clearance to pass. In other words, he can come and go any time without falling under enemy uh, radar, in this case being the Continental Army. However, Samuel Cahoon's wife, including Samuel's brother, are very skeptical of Samuel doing any more favors, most notably for Benedict Arnold. However, Benedict Arnold went as far, folks, as giving Samuel and his brother each 50 pounds of flour as a means to transport Joshua Smith three miles down the Hudson River, where he would meet, meet up with the uh, ship, a.k.a. the Vulture, can't imagine getting 50 pounds, receiving 50 pounds of flour just to do this favor. I, and I can't imagine how long that flour would last. The flour is of good use, but to be, um, this is like bribery, folks. Uh, to me, it is. So, Samuel Cahoon and his brother transport Joshua Smith three miles down the Hudson River to where uh, the ship, uh, the Vulture, lies. On board the ship, uh, John Andre was summoned by Joshua Smith and Colonel Robinson to go onto the boat manned by the Cahoon brothers. Smith accompanied Andre. The night of September 21, 1780, Arnold and Andre met together to discuss their ultimate objective, the American surrender of West Point. Arnold had on hand six documents containing details of West Point's fort and defenses, but, but the irony to it is that he had no map on hand. The meeting began late, and by the time Arnold and Andre began talking over how to attack West Point, it became light outside. Joshua Smith warned both men Andre was unable to get back to the Vulture as a result of low tide, but instead sailed six miles down to Smith's home. It was from Smith's house that exchange of uh, gunfire took place on both sides. Very um, unstable, very uncertain, and yet here these two men are trying to pull off the grandest of plots. John Andre became all the more anxious to leave, given the evening of September 22nd was to be heavily monitored by boats. Arnold told Smith and Andre to cross the Hudson by ferry. Smith, in return, would escort Andre to White Plains, which is down in the southern edge, the southernmost edge tip of New York State. Uh, so, yes, uh, Ben. Benedict Arnold um, authorized Joshua Smith to uh, escort Andre to White Plains, where 
John Andre could move by land and enter neutral territory where the end result meant getting back safely into British lines. Did Benedict Arnold give John Andre all essential papers providing details of West Point? Yes, Andre was advised by Arnold to hide all of the papers. Now, where do you think John Andre would hide all of the papers so that he would not run the risk of them falling off his horse? I mean, think about it, folks. We don't have any uh, book binders. There are no such thing as modern-day folders. Although it is probably fair to say that John Andre would have carried on carried something on him that bore resemblance to, say, a modern-day briefcase. But he, but there's no guarantee that even a briefcase alone could assure that your documents would be um, safely secured. It turns out that. Um, where John Andre hid, I know I'd be kind of foolish to give it away now, but I should tell you all right now because it will it will be mentioned again. But I will tell you this right now that uh, the best place that the best place that John Andre uh, decided to um, hide his stock, hide the um, documents per uh, Benedict Arnold's advice, was to place all of the papers in his stockings. We're not talking Christmas stockings, folks. We're talking about shoe stockings, high knee, high knee socks. Because after all, the shoes that John Andre is wearing are not ordinary um, shoes for farming. He is wearing boots, folks. So Andre had to travel through um, American lines, which meant agreeing to take off his uniform and put on something simpler, such as everyday clothing, attire, uh, civilian clothes. Arnold, is also, Arnold also gave Andre a passport that enabled him to travel under the assumed name of John Anderson. Arnold gave Andre a horse, black with a white star and having a continental brand on its uh, shoulder. Now, did General... Is General Henry Clinton aware of this next move? No. He's not aware of it because he never approved of the plan. Given he had specifically instructed John Andre not to formally meet with Arnold until the green light was given for, for uh, proceeding forward in, uh, with the uh, objective in taking over West Point. General Henry Clinton is aware of some uh, failed attempts. But he's not aware of Arnold's bribery, including a secret meeting come the evening of September 21st, 1780. So, you know, for General Henry Clinton, one of the mistakes he made was that, okay, yes, it, it was great to have the information that he obtained, that he, uh, that Arnold obtained or Arnold <laughs> gave to him about West Point and all. But if Clinton knew if he knew all along just how, um, how do you call it, how unpredictable Arnold was based upon his past records, why would you want this guy on your list? After all, is General Henry Clinton come to the realization that even Arnold himself is not only a troublemaker, but if he did completely defect over to the British side, that he would um, 
cause a lot of headache for um, for the elite inner British circle? Absolutely. So just because you have information on the enemy, it does not mean that you may be totally welcomed uh, to the other side. It may not mean that, um, that okay, your information be, may be helpful, but it doesn't mean that everybody um, may value you in the manner that you want them to value for what you uh, gave them. So, um, come uh, the evening of September 21st, 1780, into the uh, night of September uh, 22nd, 1780, or rather I should say come uh, the evening of September 22nd, 1780, um, John Andre and Benedict Arnold issued their uh, farewells to one another, but little did either man know that this would be the final time they ever saw one another again. I'm beginning to wonder now if, um, if uh, given that both men are, are parting their own ways, that one man's going to um, make it. The other one runs the risk of either not making it by means of dying, or perhaps the other one might not make it because he um, because he allows himself to get um, to enter upon. Um, the enemy's territory and perhaps doesn't find a way out. Now, during uh, Peggy's stay at West Point, uh, she was taken on various outings by Arnold's aides, which gave him greater freedom to pursue his plans for West Point's fort to be surrendered. Now, Benedict Arnold did arrive back at the headquarters, um, or rather at the home of Colonel uh, Robinson, being that's where his headquarters were. Washington and the troop forces were due to return on September 25th. The plan on the 25th would have seen Washington inspect uh, the forts, in this case the redoubts, on the side of the river where Arnold's headquarters was located. Benedict Arnold met up with Washington and staff on September 25th. His wife Peggy was present. However, September 25th brought disturbing news as a fellow by the name of Colonel Solomon Allen arrived with a letter for Benedict Arnold. The letter was from John Jameson, second in command at North Castle, advising that a John Anderson had stopped en route to New York. A John Anderson, folks? How about John Andre instead? Instead of um, Houston, we have a problem. I'm beginning to wonder if it would be fair to say somewhere down the road here soon, General Washington, we have a problem. One, that you could never have imagined, and perhaps all of us serving below you could not have imagined as well. Hold on to that uh, thought there, folks, but it will be playing again um, here uh, soon. Did anyone else, uh, did anybody else accompany John Andre? Uh, yes, that was um, Joshua Smith, whom stayed by Andre's side into the early morning hours of September 23rd, 1780. Just at the nick of uh, time, 
Joshua Smith um, leaves Andre, is it fair to say that Joshua Smith probably was more concerned about himself and at, at the very end? Perhaps so. Is it fair to say that Joshua Smith was willing to take let John Andre take the fall for what's about to unravel? Perhaps. But it's not all Joshua Smith. Here again, General Henry Clinton should have selected someone else with far more um, expertise in, when it comes to spying. But who's not to say that if uh, General Clinton had uh, chosen someone else with more expertise in spying, that we would still be in the current uh, predicament, uh, current situation predicament that we are about ready to enter into? Well, let's find out. As we mentioned earlier, uh, Major John Andre, a.k.a. John Anderson, had um, placed uh, six papers in his stocking. These six papers that Andre uh, had in his stocking were all written by Benedict Arnold, which showed the British how to take the fort, a.k.a. West Point. I mean, to think about it, folks, to give that information to someone and to, to vividly describe how to go about taking the fort, that is, um, I mean, to me, it's an egregious uh, action on the part of Benedict Arnold. I mean, it, it's treasonous. He's, he's selling out his country, basically, folks, is what he's trying to do. But to place all the documents into one person's, um, into, one, into the soul of one person, with the hopes that they can make it over enemy lines. Don't you think it might have been fair that to have uh, placed, say, two or three documents belonging to Andre, and then perhaps the other documents belonging to someone else, and that person could have gone a different uh, path, uh, perhaps? Who knows? But uh, anyways... The six papers that Andre had hidden in his stocking were all written by Arnold, which showed the British, yes, how to take the fort, a.k.a. West Point. John Andre, a.k.a. John Anderson, rode without any troubles until 9 a.m. on September 23rd when arriving near Terrytown, which is uh, 25 miles north of present-day Midtown Manhattan. He came in contact with three armed militiamen, these men's names were David Williams, Isaac Van Wart, and John Paulding. Andre told the militiamen he was a Continental officer and showed his passport. However, the militiamen were not sold. They searched um, John Andre, and the search they performed, it was almost as if it was like John Andre being at the airport trying, at an airport trying to uh, clear uh, security by means of um, a, a TSA officer, Transportation Security Administrative Officer. So, Paulding, Williams, and um, Van Wart are going way beyond the extra mile, given that they just don't feel that, that what they're seeing in front of them is the real deal. And the, and, the, and the irony to it, folks, is this. I was always under the assumption that even all Continental so soldiers who fought in the Revolutionary War were able to read. Out of all three men, militiamen whom stopped um, John Andre, only one of those militiamen could read, and that was John Paulding. John Paulding 
given the fact that he could read, and while he was trying to read these uh, documents, that basically they had, um, they were able to find the documents. They had um, John Andre take off his boot, and they found the papers in Andre's stocking. Andre um, is trying to bribe the militiamen, but it got nowhere. Paulding knew for a fact that Andre was now a spy. Along with Paulding, uh, Williams and Van Wart uh, now took Andre to Continental Army headquarters located in Sands Mill, present-day Armonk, located near the New York-Connecticut line. It does pay for someone to be able to read, folks, even in the time of war. If John Paulding was not able to read, then all three of those militiamen were at a huge loss. They might as well have been forced to surrender by letting Andre go, and who knows what, where history would have, uh, would have uh, unfolded. It was a bulge in, in the stocking of John Andre's that uh, persuaded the three militiamen to order Andre to fully remove the stocking, which led to the ultimate uncovering of the documents signed, written by Benedict Arnold, whom sought to sell out his country, the United States, by overseeing the full American surrender of West Point. Careful examination of all seized documents helped prevent Paulding, Van Wart, and Williams from turning down bribes Andre made. These bribes ranged from Andre providing all three militiamen his horse, watch, to a hundred guineas. Andre asked to be taken to the King's Brigade via bribe, but the all three militiamen turned down the offer, knowing by taking him to the British lines they risked getting arrested. John Andre now was sent to Wright's Mill in North Castle. The documents were given to Colonel James Jameson, whom rewarded all three captors. Three militiamen, folks, at the right place at the right time. Without those three militiamen, who knows what history might have um, become. Of course, we're not out of the woods just yet, but you just... Stories like these are what make learning about something like this probably a little bit more advantageous compared to what the textbooks told us years ago. Now, who's uh, Benjamin Talmadge? Well, Benjamin Talmadge was George Washington's intelligence chief. Talmadge clearly recognized Arnold's handwriting and immediately suspected treason. Colonel John Jameson was the officer whom delivered the six pieces of paper to Washington, previously carried by John Andre. Washington was told by Jameson all documents made by were made by Arnold based upon recognizing Arnold's handwriting. But if you're George Washington here, this is this is going to be tough because Washington went into denial at first. He didn't want to believe what he had heard. And I think if any one of us were in Washington's shoes, we all would feel the same way. Are you, you know, in other words, are you really sure that this is Benedict Arnold's handwriting? Are you really sure that he would want to sell out his country knowing that I myself had gone up to bat for him many of times and he always thanked me in return? Why would he want to do something like this? Well, it's what we all want to believe. Well, 
Jameson, Colonel James Jameson instead went about writing a note to Benedict Arnold advising him of the matter at stake. September 25th, 1780, over breakfast at Colonel Robinson's house, Arnold received Jameson's note only to make an excuse to leave the room and not be seen again. The note itself enabled Arnold to return back into enemy lines. Washington and his party of troops, including other officers, arrived an hour or two later back at West Point, only to observe for its uh, defenses in total disarray. So Benedict Arnold never did anything, folks. You know, he, he told Washington of some things that weren't uh, being done, so now Washington's got to figure out what's going on here, and it's, you know, he can't rush to judgment right away, but he's got to figure out some things here, and he doesn't have weeks to figure them out. He might only have days, folks. A few hours later, um, Washington did officially learn from Major Benjamin Talmadge that the six documents presented earlier from Colonel Jameson did, in fact, reveal Arnold's handwriting and intent, and the intent was to sell out the American fort at West Point to the British. In other words, it would, the plan was to have the Americans surrender the fort altogether, giving British sole access to the Hudson River north and south, you know, from America to Canada, Canada to America. Talk about a dangerous um, present for the British that could have had profound consequences in altering the war. Washington immediately dispatched men to arrest Arnold. How did uh, Peggy Shippen react to everything that had now just unraveled? For one, she appeared to be stunned, but secondly, learning upon her husband's desertion to join the British Army resulted in her passing out, fainting. Although she regained herself, or rather, she regained her consciousness, her fears grew to where trusting anyone was out of the picture. Okay, you know, if I'm George Washington, I hear Peggy talking about this or any other officers near her comforting her, I guess we all would feel the same way. You know, wh whom can we trust now? However, George Washington, um, he came to Peggy's room only for Peggy not to recognize him. That seems odd. She still engaged in acts of uncontrolled emotions, leaving Washington so embarrassed that he had no other option but to leave her room. In other words, how can Washington reason with a, with a woman who is so distraught that she can't even control her own emotions to where she can literally tell him right away, this is what happened, X, Y, and Z has happened. Despite Washington's uh, leaving Peggy's room, in a state of embarrassment, the general did eventually regain his own emotional well-being to where he sympathized with Peggy. Washington gave Peggy a letter that Arnold had asked uh, be delivered to her. Of course, when this letter was written, the um, obviously it was the letter was written at the time that the plot was in in its works, but little did Washington know that um, that the letter that was uh, written. You know, Washington had no idea that this that the letter itself that was being written was in fact going on when the plot itself was taking place. Of course, he doesn't know it at the moment, 
at the moment, but he will eventually figure out that, in fact, it was. So Washington gives Peggy this letter, and but the letter um, states the stated a couple of things. Number one, that uh, Benedict was safe. Okay, but the more important thing was that Benedict gave Peggy some instructions. Number one, she had the option to return to Philadelphia, where her father and extended family lived, or go to New York, where he was, where he he currently was. Peggy chose instead to go back to Philadelphia. She left West Point on September 27th, folks. Remember I said early on to hold on to that date of the 27th? There's, there's a reason why she only stayed in West Point till the 27th. Okay, if she's going back to Philadelphia, yes, she. it would be safe to assume that by going back to Philadelphia, she'll be uh, safe. Given that Philadelphia has a larger population than West Point, people can come and go. However, at the same time, I'm also beginning to wonder that when Peggy returns, she will lose, um, something tells me she could lose some of her, um, she could lose a, a certain amount of uh, safety, or uh, she could lose a certain uh, degree of, of what's called a safety net. In other words, news does travel fast. Of course, we don't have social media. There's no email. There's no breaking news app alerts. But when Peggy does return, there might be some other uh, news at work that could um, have uh, consequences that uh, go beyond the sky ceiling. In other words, it could be news that, yes, does involve Peggy, but it could be news that, to me, is the equivalent of a bombshell. Something that is so bad, so profound, that it will not only impact, say, the Congress in Philadelphia, it may not impact those whom are on the battlefield fighting for this uh, cause for independence. But something tells me that it's going to send a lot of shockwaves to where America's future as a nation might be at stake. In other words, what, whatever bombshell is dropped on us, is it, going to, is it going to have a negative effect on whether or not we can win this uh, war that is still raging on against the mightiest empire in the world? So... When I'm on the air again next, that's what we've got to um, we've got to talk about, and we've got to figure out how, where do we go from here. But what we do know is that uh, three unsung heroes, who may not have had the most uh, glamorous of ranks, they're just your everyday militiamen, but they have done something very very noble. And as I said earlier, um, these three men will get mentioned again in a later podcast. Because uh, after having read up some read up about them some more from the previous day going into this podcast, uh, you will be surprised to learn just how much more there is about these three men in terms of their uh, like overall legacies. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. So uh, thank you again for being such ardent listeners, and uh, again thank you uh, for all of your. Um, support because without you guys i'm not sure where i would be so uh, take care for now wherever you all may live in the world continue to stay safe